Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as personalized recommendations or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for any investment, accounting, legal, and tax advice or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Brent Foster, and this is your weekly market insights with Northbound Wealth Management. We're going to review last week. Let's just go ahead and dive in. Here's the headline. November rally continues. So those of you who have been following this year, uh, we go over a bunch of data, tax tips, and other investment strategies, ideas, tips, technical analysis, fundamental analysis, all kinds of stuff. It changes from week to week. So you got to stay tuned to hear all the updates, all the cool stuff that we're talking about. Let's review last week. Stocks extend their November rally last week as investors cheered lower than forecast inflation data. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 1.94%, while the S&P 500 added 2.24%. The NASDAQ Composite Index rose 2.37% for the week, and the MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, increased 3.36%. All right, let's talk about the Dow. The Dow closed last week at 34,947. Year to date, that's up 5.43%. The NASDAQ closed up at 14. 1,125. That's up 34.96% for the year. MSCI IFA index closed at 2,079. That's up 6.97% for the year. The S&P 500, which is what we like or track the most, closed at 4,514. That's up 17.57% for the year. Hey, not bad. Surviving October, coming out of October, man, things are ripping. Um, Treasury market, 10-year treasury note, Uh, Closed at 4.44%. That's down from about 5% just over the last couple months. So we've got a bit of a backup in yields uh, in the bond market, which also is a signal for the market, the stock market to rally. Stocks march higher. So a better than anticipated consumer inflation number on Tuesday of last week sent bond yields sharply lower, igniting a powerful, exceptionally broad based rally that saw 91% of all. New York Stock Exchange volume. So the NYSE volume advancing in price and a similarly substantial advance, 85% on the NASDAQ. Small cap stock performance was solid as well, surging 5.2%, more than double the advance of the S&P 500, which makes sense given that it's riskier, right? So further gains came the following day as wholesale price inflation rose even slower than consumer prices. The rally paused In the final days of trading last week, as stocks digested their gains and investors assessed weak retail sales and industrial production reports and a rise in continuing jobless claims. So inflation cools. Two inflation reports released last week, the CPI and the PPI, showed continued inflation progress, meaning they're trending down meaning inflation's coming down. So that means that the the Fed's raising rates is actually working to tamp down inflation. Consumer prices were flat in October from the previous month, while the 12-month increase was 3.2%. Both were below market forecasts. 
Core CPI, excluding food and energy, also moderated, rising just 0.2% in October and 4% from a year ago, below forecast again. The climb in the annual core CPI was the lowest in two years. Producer prices confirmed the disinflationary picture as wholesale prices declined 0.5% in October versus a 0.1% forecast. It was the biggest decline in three and a half years. Over the last 12 months, wholesale prices rose just 1.3%. So all of that is good news for the consumer. Um, So that's good. We'll just see how consumers really feel about it and sentiment data and stuff like that. So Tuesday, we have existing home sales and FOMC minutes. Wednesday, durable goods orders, jobless claims, consumer sentiment, like I said. Friday, purchasing managers index composite. That's the flash report. So the PMI, we'll track that data for you. And uh, obviously as, as usual, make adjustments in portfolios where we see fit uh, looking at fundamentals. So notable companies reporting earnings this week's a bit light, but there's one important one on Tuesday. So Monday, Allegiant technologies, Tuesday, Nvidia Lowe's analog devices, Wednesday, Deere and company. The one I was talking about that was notable is NVIDIA. We'll have to see what they report. All right. Our tax tip for the week, starting a new hobby. It's a good question. Might be a good time to think about that. These tips can help you understand the tax situation if you do start a new hobby. So whether picking up painting or cooking new concoctions in your kitchen, starting a new hobby is always fun and a great way to learn something new. Did you know There are some tax considerations when starting a new hobby. Did you know that? Especially if you're considering turning your newfound passion into a business. Taxpayers are expected to report any income earned from hobbies, even if it's not a licensed business. To compare, businesses are done to make a profit, while hobbies are done for recreation, not to make a profit. Here are nine factors that can help you determine whether a hobby could also be considered a business according to yours truly, the IRS. All right, here we go. We're going to go through this list. Whether you carry on the activity in a business-like manner and maintain complete and accurate books and records. So if you do that, obviously it's one, not the other, right? It's a business not a hobby, whether you have personal motives in carrying on the activity, whether the time and effort you put into the activity indicate you intend to make it profitable, whether you depend on income from the activity for your livelihood, whether your losses are due to circumstances beyond your control or are normal in the startup phase of your type of business, whether you or your financial professional have the knowledge needed to carry on the activity as successful businesses, whether you successfully made a profit in a similar activities in the past, whether the activity makes a profit in some years and how much profit it makes, whether you can expect to make a future profit from the appreciation of the assets used in the activity. You may also be able to deduct some of the expenses associated with your hobby within certain limits. Taxpayers can usually deduct ordinary and necessary hobby expenses. An ordinary expense is one that is common and accepted for the activity. A necessary expense is one that is appropriate for the activity. And again, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional 
And this tip was adapted from irs.gov. All right, stay tuned for the next segment. So one of my favorite books is Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. So um, if you're looking for biblical financial principles uh, regarding finance and investing and uh, just making good, solid decisions about stewardship and the rest of it, this is a great book. So I highly recommend it. Randy Alcorn is a great human being. So um, I just want to read an excerpt from chapter seven. Uh, in his book that I think is appropriate given that this is Thanksgiving and it's a great time of year to reflect on uh, some key biblical principles. Um, uh, But he wrote some things down, which I really like. Here we go. Confederate currency. So think of uh, back in the day during the Civil War, the the Confederacy and uh, that era. So I use this analogy in my book, The Treasure Principle, Discovering the Secret of Joyful Giving. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Well, as believers, we have inside knowledge of a coming change in the worldwide economic situation. The currency of this world will be worthless at our death or Christ's return, both of which are imminent. This knowledge should radically affect our investment strategy. For us to accumulate vast earthly treasures in the face of the inevitable future is the equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money. It's not just wrong, it's stupid. Kingdom currency backed by the eternal treasury is the only medium of exchange recognized by the Son of God, whose government will last forever. The currency of his kingdom is our present faithful service and sacrificial use of our resources for him. The payoff in eternity will be what Paul called a firm foundation, consisting of treasures beyond our wildest dreams. In the financial world, there are experts known as market timers, or traders. When they read the signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn, they recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable or consistent investments, such as treasury bills, money market funds, or CDs. In Matthew 6, Jesus functions as the foremost investment advisor, the ultimate expert in the economics of earth and heaven. His strategy is simple. He tells us to switch investment vehicles once and for all. He says we should transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is totally dependable and is coming soon to forever replace earth's economy. In Wall Street terms, Christ is bearish when it comes to investing on earth. His financial forecast for this world is ultimately bleak, but he's unreservingly bullish about investing in heaven where every market indicator is eternally positive. So where is your heart? Christ's words were direct and profound. He said, quote, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. 
What we do with our possessions is a sure indicator of what's in our hearts, Jesus is saying. Show me your bank and credit card statements and your receipts for cash expenditures, and I'll show you where your heart is. What we do with money doesn't lie. It is a bold statement to God of what we truly value. But what we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. According to Jesus, it determines where our heart goes. This is an amazing and exciting truth. If I want my heart to be in one particular place and not in another, then I need to put my money in that place and not the other. I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I want I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and your heart will also follow. Do you wish you had a greater heart for the poor and lost? Then give your money to help the poor and reach the lost. Do you want your heart to be in your church? Put money there. Your heart will always be where your money is and not where your money isn't. If most of your money is in mutual funds, retirement, your house, your hobby, that's where your heart's going to be. Suppose if you're giving to help African children with AIDS or sponsoring a child in Haiti, when you see an article on the subject, you're hooked. If you're sending money to plant churches in India and an earthquake hits India, you watch the news and fervently pray. Why? Because your heart is where your treasure is. If you think, quote, my heart isn't in all the things of God, Is it because your treasure isn't in the things of God? It's a good question to ask. Put your resources, your assets, your money, and your possessions, and your time, and your talents, and your energies into the things of God. And surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads and your heart follows. So there's two perspectives. There's living for the here and now, and then there's living for eternity, which is really how we ought to all be living because eternity is forever. And the decisions we make today impact that decision of eternity. So that's a great reflection. I thought I'd share that with you all as you head into the giving season. We are wealthy, wealthy, wealthy Americans. On a global scale, we're very wealthy. And so we can afford to take a look around and try to help someone in need. Consider that and stay tuned for the next segment. As a financial professional assisting clients through retirement, we know that Alzheimer's, dementia, and memory loss are ever-growing concerns of many families. If a loved one has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or any other form of dementia, it can be a challenging time. Through our work with clients, we've come across some products that can help make a difference in the lives of patients and their caregivers. Here's a short list of products that we've heard about over the years. Keep in mind that any products or companies mentioned are for illustrative purposes only. They should not be considered solicitations for the purchase or sale of securities. Any investment should be consistent with your objectives, time frame, and risk tolerance. Home assistants and smart plugs help families provide care remotely. Voice assistants or home hubs Assist in making voice and video calls, allowing your family to drop in to the room, detect movement, and automate or voice activate lights and appliances. They can also help you get help, ask for information, or turn on entertainment. 
Amazon has invested in this area, including the Alexa Care Hub, to assist families with the care of loved ones remotely. Possible choices include Alexa Care Hub and Google Nest Hub Max. Home sensors and movement detection can alert families to defined risks to safety. Smart home products and sensors can assist in detecting movement or lack thereof, smoke and doors being opened or windows being opened. These can trigger notifications, alerts, alarms, or actions. Such devices can help maintain independence and manage risks. Possible choices include Philips Movement Detection and Eve Smart Home Sensors. Entertainment keeps loved ones occupied, stimulated, and independent longer, which is a really good thing. Many entertainment products are designed with cognitive issues in mind. They offer simplified, larger user interfaces and integrate visual and audio cues to help your loved ones keep busy, stimulate their senses, and stay connected. Some of our favorites include specialty designed tablets and simplified music players or radios. Possible choices include Alexa Show, Grand Pad Simplified Seniors Tablet, Simple TV Remote, and Simple E-Reader and Music Player. Please let us know if you are dealing with cognitive decline in any family member. Feel free to share that with anyone you know who might benefit from some of these suggestions. And this is all from yours truly here at Northbound Wealth Management. All right, on to the next segment. Hey everyone, this is Brent Foster. Here is a article from the American Association of Individual Investors that I picked up. Really think that uh, it's informative and it was written by John Deicher. He's a CFA and uh, is the president and portfolio manager of the Pinnacle Value Fund, a diversified SEC-registered mutual fund specializing in the securities of small and micro-cap firms. He has managed equity portfolios for over 30 years. Find out more at www.aaii.com forward slash authors forward slash John dash Deicher and uh, check out uh, some of his releases. But this is a stock strategy as it relates to the pros and cons of investing in BDCs to access private equity. A a BDC is a business development company that they offer the opportunity to invest in some of the attractive areas of the private equity space or private markets. However, there are significant risks. And so I'll dive into his article in just a second. So private equity, you may be hearing the term a lot these days. While billion-dollar deals make the headlines, firms of all sizes, private and public, are being acquired by private equity firms. Although higher interest rates may slow the number of transactions going forward, private equity firms still have billions in capital to put to work on deals. One way for individual investors to participate is through a business development company or a BDC. They allow public shareholders access to portfolios that resemble private equity funds. So how did they get started? Well, business development companies were authorized by U.S. Congress in 1980 to help fuel job growth and provide capital to small and medium-sized private businesses that lacked access to traditional capital sources, such as banks and public markets, They may also be firms suffering from financial troubles. While BDCs have been a part of the regulatory landscape for decades, their 
profile has risen in recent years because of the substantial returns generated by private equity. And uh, such firms include Apollo Global Management, Aries Management, Blackstone, Carlisle Group, KKR and Company, and others. Some have formed their own BDCs. Traditionally, BDCs provided high interest rate, short-term loans from three to five years to small and mid-market companies that lacked access to or were maxed out on traditional bank credit. Such loans could be used to provide liquidity, help fund growth, make acquisitions, or facilitate ownership changes. Loans might take the form of a credit line or secured, unsecured, or convertible debt depending on the borrower's financial strength. BDCs might also extend capital via straight or convertible preferred stock. The loans often come with equity kickers like warrants, rights, or options, and sometimes the loan itself was convertible to equity. If the firm grew and prospered, the BDC got back its principal plus interest and might end up with a small piece of equity. If the firm ran into trouble or was reorganized, the BDC and other creditors would wrestle over who owned what percentage of the new enterprise. In a liquidation, they would share in the net proceeds based on claim seniority. A typical BDC transaction process goes something like this. Sourcing, evaluation, execution, monitoring, and exit. Let me say that again. Sourcing, evaluation, execution, monitoring, and then an exit. Deals usually come from a variety of sources, including private equity firms, investment bankers, commercial bankers, business brokers, accounting or law firms, and others. Once a potential target is located, extensive due diligence is performed, including qualitative and quantitative analysis to assess strategic operating and financial capabilities. Execution involves negotiating an acceptable transaction price and determining how the transaction is to be financed, debt versus equity, and who provides the capital for each. Equity may be provided by the BDC and the insiders or other financial entities like hedge funds. They, uh, the debt may be provided by the BDC investment in commercial banks, private equity firms, public high yield notes or bonds, hedge funds, and other lenders. Both equity and debt deals are often syndicated, allowing parties to co-invest and spread out the risk. Nowadays, most BDCs are involved on the debt side of the equation, which is why most boast significant yields. During the monitoring phase, the BDCs must provide managerial assistance to their portfolio companies, which may include strategic operating and financial advice, as well as holding board seats. Exit occurs when the position is recapitalized, taken public or sold to a third party, It may also be written off or written down. Typical structure of a BDC. Most BDCs are organized as closed-end funds, or CEFs, to raise a pool of capital on an initial public offering or an IPO and then trade on a stock exchange. The captive asset base is not vulnerable to shareholder redemptions, allowing the BDC manager to think long-term. Secondary offerings may follow, complete with a prospectus and a roadshow. While the net asset value, or NAV, or assets minus liabilities, is normally calculated quarterly via a valuation process, BDCs that trade on an exchange 
are priced daily. In addition to equity capital, a BDC may raise debt capital from banks or other lenders, including the sale of BDC baby bonds to the public that pay interest on semi-annual basis and mature in eight to 10 years. Like mutual funds, BDCs are regulated by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, and usually must meet the following guidelines. So invest at least 70% of assets in private or public U.S. firms, provide managerial assistance to companies in the portfolio, meet certain asset diversification and debt level tests, not issue new shares at less than NAV, which would dilute existing shareholders, except via a rights offering where existing shareholders buy the new shares. Distribute 90% of all investment income and net realized capital gains, at least annually, to shareholders who are taxed on distributions at their own rates. Distributions are sometimes made quarterly. Shareholders receive a Form 1099-DIV showing the breakdown between net investment income and capital gains. As long as 90% requirement is met, the BDC itself pays no taxes. The benefits of a BDC. Well, uh, BDCs offer a number of benefits to investors, including liquidity, no need to put up a $5 million minimum or make a 10-year commitment, which is called a lockup. Most BDCs trade at less than $30 on an exchange that offers daily liquidity. So that's a big deal. Attractive dividend yields because BDCs must distribute almost all of their net investment income and net capital gains. Yields can be attractive, often in the 10% to 12% range. The upside potential, almost every BDC has some element of equity in the portfolio to supplement the income portion. These might include common shares, convertible debt, or preferred stocks, warrants, rights, or options. If the company is sold either privately or via an IPO, these securities become quite valuable. Economies of scale. So operating costs of the BDC manager, outside consultants and attorneys and other expenses may be spread across many deals and make transactions more cost effective. Exposure. BDCs provide access to alternative investments that aren't widely available through other vehicles in the marketplace and may have little correlation to it. Professional management, access to skilled managers with the ability to source, evaluate, execute, monitor, and exit portfolio companies on a timely basis. And then finally, diversification. Most BDCs are widely diversified, which helps reduce risk. So what are the risks of BDCs? We just talked about the benefits. Let's talk about the risks. There are also risks associated with business development companies that investors should consider. Conflicts of interest being a top one. A BDC may be internally or externally managed. An internally managed BDC employs its own staff of investment, marketing, and administrative personnel who are dedicated to finding investments solely for the BDC. The externally managed BDCs, however, have no employees but hires an outside advisor to provide the personnel necessary to oversee the BDC. The advisor for an externally managed BDC may also manage institutional accounts, limited partnerships, or other vehicles in addition to the BDC. When a choice investment is found and there's not enough to go around, which investment bucket does it go into? It's a good question. Trade allocation procedures help, but the public BDC may still be at a disadvantage. We knew of one BDC where the advisor set up a private equity fund and an institutional account that competed directly with the BDC for deals, all completely legal 
if fully disclosed. High fees, top investment talent commands top compensation and BDCs are no exception. A typical fee structure is 1% to 2% of gross assets under management or AUM plus a 20% to 25% basically performance-based fee of any profits upon the sale of the investment. Throw in, inve- throw in interest on borrowings and other operating expenses, and the expense ratio can mushroom to 10 to 12% per year or higher in some cases, right? Fair valuation, since virtually none of the securities held in a BDC are publicly traded and they make no disclosures, the BDC manager or outside advisor determines the fair valuation of holdings on a quarterly basis. Yeah, fair value is estimated using a variety of tools, including discounted cash flow, the DCF models, multiples that uh, that similar like publicly traded companies are trading at or at values that have surfaced in a recent merger or acquisition in an M&A transaction. So it's part art and part science, but every security must be fairly valued in order to arrive at a quarterly NAV or net asset value. Typically, the BDC board must approve all fair valuations and revisions if necessary. The BDC outside auditors may approve the assumptions and methodologies of the fair value process, but it does not audit each company in the BDC portfolio. The portfolio companies typically have their own certified public accountants or CPAs to audit their books. Accurate fair values are essential since using overly optimistic assumptions, even unintentionally, can result in inflated NAV pricing, which has sunk more than one BDC in recent memory. Another risk is small company risk. So most BDC targets can't get financing through exiting channels because of the risks or costs involved. Small companies often have limited customers, product lines, marketing budgets, distribution channels, management, talent, and financial resources, making them more vulnerable to economic downturns. The risk of bankruptcy or default is higher and the entire investment may be lost. Borrowing risk. Since BDCs must pay out 90% of net investment income and net realized gains cannot issue new shares except at a premium to NAV or via a rights offering, incurring more debt is often only the only way to raise capital to grow the business. Additional leverage magnifies the potential gains or losses on the amount invested. Rising interest rates are a double-edged sword since they increase the interest rates on the credit of the BDC uh, that they extend, but also raises the cost of capital of money that the BDC borrows. Many BDCs that have debt rolling over in the coming months may be forced to pay higher rates for similar terms, which in turn means they must reduce borrowings or earn more on extended credit. Matching assets and liabilities is critical in the current environment. Losses on a portfolio of loans may trigger covenant violations on the credit facility and reduce or eliminate the potential for further borrowings. So the last two risks here, uh, NAV discount risk, like all closed-end funds, BDCs are vulnerable to the possibility that during market or industry downturn, the market price may fall below the net asset value. An investor may exploit this by purchasing shares of high-quality BDCs at a big discount to NAV and then waiting for the turmoil to subside and the discount to narrow. BDCs may also trade at a discount to NAV if underlying performance has been lackluster. While those trading at a premium are usually performing well, 
Bad deal risk. The market for BDC investments is highly competitive and poor underwriting can result in a write-off that can seriously impact a BDC's return. So how do you evaluate a BDC or business development company? Um, If you're interested in testing the BDC waters, here are some questions to ask when evaluating individual BDCs. Most can be answered by reading a BDC's annual report, SEC annual form 10K and proxy statement. So number one, who's the advisor and how much stock do they own? As with other investments made at the Pinnacle Value Fund, we like advisors who are also owners and have their wallets or pocketbooks on the line every day as we do. The higher the ownership, the better. Both internally and externally managed BDCs must file proxies with the SEC that should be read carefully to assess insider ownership levels, whether there are 5% shareholders and how significant related party transactions are. Number two, what are the annual returns over at least the last five to 10 years, including appreciation and distributions? This return information may be found in the financial highlights notes section of the form 10K. Typically, annual returns are shown for each of the last five or 10 years. Often there are two types of returns listed, one based on changes in the market values and the other based on changes in NAV. Both include the reinvestment of distributions, which is desirable. Number three, what is the expense ratio? Most BDCs have expense ratios that are off the chart. We're willing to pay a higher ratio if the manager or advisor has generated consistent above average returns over the long term. Number four, how is the financial leverage? How much has the BDC borrowed? Especially in the current environment of higher interest rates, it's critical to know the terms of the underlying debt. What is the interest rate and when does that when does the debt mature? Given the risks involved with the target companies, we prefer BDCs that borrow prudently and maintain an unleveraged balance sheet. Number five, what's the distribution payout ratio? To attract and maintain an investor base, some BDCs pay out more than they earn. The difference is a return on capital. Over time, return on capital payouts will erode the NAV, which is not good for shareholders. We prefer BDCs that do not pay out more than they earn, even if the result is a lower yield. Number six, is the BDC managed internally or externally? As previously discussed, We prefer BDCs that are managed internally by a group of employees dedicated to finding the best possible investments for the BDC shareholders. Unfortunately, most BDCs today are externally managed by advisors who often manage other investment vehicles in addition to the BDC. Such BDCs have trade allocation procedures, but conflicts of interest may still arise. Number seven, are you comfortable with the underlying investment? Most BDCs invest across a variety of industries, but some focus solely on particular industry, such as technology, telecommunications, life sciences, or energy. For example, Hercules Capital, a ticker symbol HTGC, and Horizon Technology Finance Corporation, or HRZN, focused mostly on technology and life sciences. Number eight, how concentrated are the investments? This may take some digging. While all BDCs disclose a schedule of investments on a quarterly basis, it is often up to the shareholder to calculate which of the positions are the largest based on fair values. Heavy positions can become problematic and we prefer a diversified portfolio. 
So in conclusion, clearly BDCs aren't for everyone. Most offer liquidity, income, upside potential, professional management, and the opportunity to invest in some attractive areas. There are significant risks, however, including high fees, financial leverage, conflicts of interest, and risky underlying investments, to name a few. Most BDCs have websites where you can find their information, including annual reports, types of investments, or types of investments, advisors, leverage employed, uh, leverage employed, expense and payout ratios, distributions, and other important data. All file documents with the SEC, which you should read carefully, including Form 10Ks, 10Qs, 14As, and 8Ks. A list of BDCs may be found at www.quantumonline.com under the stock list drop-down menu. It's free with registration. You may also find BDC details at www.bdcinvestor.com, which provides lots of good information on the sector. If you're not comfortable owning individual BDCs, there's an exchange-traded fund, Vanek BDC Income ETF, or BIZD, that invests in a basket of larger BDCs. As with individual BDCs, be sure to read the supporting documents carefully. So take time to analyze and identify BDCs you want to own based on your risk profile and income requirements. Then when the time is right and the market price is where you think it should be, make your move. While it's gratifying to your ego to invest with the big guys, don't pay up for mediocre performance or greedy managers and be sure to watch the financial leverage. Happy hunting. I thought this was just a well done article on a complicated sector, business development companies. Uh, John uh, Deicher did a great job with that. Great job uh, uh, publishing it. The uh, article is from the American Association of Individual Investors. I hope you guys learned something from this and maybe learned of a new segment if you've never heard of a BDC. Um, Yeah, they're they're a growing space and uh, Northbound Wealth Management does invest and have some investments in BDCs or business development companies. Uh, but we're very, very careful in selecting the, which ones those are. If you're interested in learning more, please reach out to us uh, here at 317-399-1107 or send us an email at info at northboundwealth.com, info at northboundwealth.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week, you guys. Bye-bye.